Amen. Uh, so this morning, uh, we are wrapping up our series uh, through kind of the middle section of the book of Romans uh, with the conclusion of Romans chapter 8. And this is one of those sections of Scripture uh, that is both simultaneously, when, when preachers preach on this, just so you know, a little window into pastor's hearts and minds when we're preparing for these types of sermons on texts like this, is it's both, like, amazing because there's a reality of, like, what am I going to say that's, like, going to add to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8? As you hear those words, they're amazing and beautiful, and so, in a sense, it kind of preaches itself. Uh, But on the other hand, it's terrifying because it's like, well, I got to say something. <laughs> like, I got I to, gotta, like, reflect on it in some way, uh, and it's intimidating uh, because these words, Romans chapter 8, um, even if you haven't grown up in church, you may have heard these words uh, in various contexts and various capacities. For many people, um, funerals are a common place where these words from, from Romans chapter 8 are heard, especially kind of the what can separate us from God's love, and Paul kind of goes into all of those things that, that can never separate us, and they're powerful, they're amazing words, and, and Paul is giving them to us. Paul wrote them for his original hearers by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we, as Christians today, we receive it today, and, and we take it into our lives, and what Paul wants us, what, what I think the Scriptures are pointing us to are two really powerful truths for us to grab a hold of this morning. Two truths for you right now, today, and for the rest of your lives, to let sink into your heart, to your mind, to your very self. And as you let these two truths sink in, uh, they will radically change uh, not only your eternity as you grab a hold of them, but they will change you even now. They will make you into a certain type of person, even now. So what are those two truths? Paul highlights for us, that he, he puts in front of us that we are to grab a hold of. Uh, the first is this. It's really simple. God is for you. That's the first big thing Paul highlights to us in this kind of mountaintop of Romans 8. He says this is the key thing for you to grab a hold of, for you to know at the very core of your being, God is for you. Now let's just Think about what it means to be for someone. Because you can be for people. People can be for you. What exactly does that mean? Um, it can mean a whole lot of things, but, but kind of two things that, that I think are essential to be for someone. Uh, the first thing, and this is kind of the obvious thing, uh, it means you love them. <laughs> like, you are for someone, which means, at the very least, you love them. And, and I don't mean the cheap, superficial love. I mean the, the real kind of gritty love. The love that means I'm in your corner even when you're making a mess of your life. I won't desert you. I won't turn my back on you. And likewise, when you, because let's be honest, we can make train wrecks of our own lives. We get into messes. Isn't it so amazing when when even if there's everyone that turns away, you have that friend or that family member or that spouse, that someone in your life that says, hey, I'm not going to run away from you. Yeah, you've made mistakes. Yeah, you're being an idiot. But I'm not going to leave you high and dry. That's what it means to love someone, to be for them. And at the very core of that is a sacrifice for that person because, listen, 
sometimes it's really hard to love people, isn't it? And if you doubt that, just ask the people closest to you, hey, am I hard to love? And just wait for the long pause of, "Mm, sometimes. (laughs) Because all of us at some level are hard to love. We just are. We're imperfect. We fail. We fall short. But before someone means that you're in their corner and you sacrifice for them, and you love them. That's the side that's the obvious side. What it means to be for someone is to be in their corner, to sacrifice for them, to love them. But here's the other kind of flip side of being for someone. It means that you care about their ultimate good. You care about their ultimate good. Now notice I didn't say to be for someone means you care about what they want. Because those are not always the same thing, are they? We want a lot of things. But sometimes, and let's be honest, sometimes a lot of times, they aren't what we actually need for our ultimate good. They're nice things. They can be good things, but they're not for our ultimate good. So to be for someone means you have the awareness that says, sometimes I need to tell this person no. Right? Parents get this. Your kids come to you with all the requests, all the wants, and even what they say is all the needs. I need this. And you as the parent, over the course of their life, your job, your task is to be for them, which means you don't always give them candy for dinner. Maybe sometimes, right? You need, to, you need a break. All right, let's, let's have them calm down. Let's give a treat. But not all the time, right? You give them what they need for their ultimate good. In the big things and the small things, that's what it means to be for someone. And that's a difficult thing, isn't it? But what's the person that never says no to somebody in their life? That always gives them what they ask for, always gives them what they want. You know what we have a name for that? Enabler. See, to be for someone is not to enable them is not to always give them what they want, but to say, I want what is for your ultimate good. And sometimes that leads to difficult conversations. That's what it means to be for someone. And so now, let's go back to what Paul says. What is this truth that Paul says about God and you? God is what? He is for you. Just think about how amazing that is. God loves you, and you and I are hard to love, but he does. He loves you. He's in your corner. Like, just think about the magnitude of that, like, reality. God, who made everything. Do you know the universe? Do you know how big the universe is? Like, gigantic. Like, I don't even know how big it is. It keeps growing. We don't even know how big it is. But, But God knows, and he made it. That God says, I'm in your corner. I'm for you. I love you. That's amazing that he would say that and that he is working things for your ultimate good. That's his promise to you, that that is what he's up to in your life, that he's working all the things, the good things, the the neutral things, even the bad things. He's working all of them, using all of them for your ultimate 
good. And that's what Paul wants you to grab a hold of and to say, I believe this. I know this. I'm confident of this. To which you may be saying, Pastor Andy, that's great. But like, how do I know that? Those are just words. Those are words written thousands of years ago. What does Paul know? Why do we know this? How can I be confident of this? Well, I'm glad you asked, because Paul shows where we can be confident. Verse 31 leading into 32, he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's his way of saying, God is for you. It's a rhetorical question. God is for you, and here's the proof. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. You want to know the proof of where you can know God is for you beyond a shadow of a doubt? Paul says, look at the fact that God did not hold back what was most precious to him for you. But what did he do? He gave up his very own son for you, to forgive you, to save you, to rescue you. He gave it all up. And and the original hearers, just so you know, of this letter, many of them would have been Jewish. And they would hear Paul's phrasing that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up. They would immediately think of one story. And if you grew up in Sunday school, you may remember this story from the Old Testament. They would immediately think of the story of a man named Abraham and his son, Isaac. The promised son, the son that God gave to Abraham and Sarah when they were like a bajillion years old and they had no kids, but like God can do that sort of thing. Uh, He's a miracle worker, and so they had this son Isaac, the son of the promise. And then God says this crazy thing to Abraham, right? He says, all right, Abraham, you've been waiting for this son, and now he's like a young adult. He's like in his 20s, and and he's going to be the promise bearer, but here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I want you to take your son, and I want you to go up to the top of the mountain and, and sacrifice him to me, which is a crazy thing for God to say, right? But, but what's even crazier is Abraham and Isaac. Remember, he's a 20-year-old dude. And his father's like a bajillion years old. He could fend him off. But what do they do? They both go up the mountain, trusting in God, putting their faith in God that this is crazy. I can't understand it, but I'm going to trust him, even though this crazy thing he asked of me. And so they get up to the mountain. Abraham is about to sacrifice his one and only son. But God sends his angel, his messenger, and says, stop. Get your hands off him. Unbind him. I've seen your faith. And it's an incredible display of faith for Abraham and Isaac, but here's what's so amazing. What's so amazing, it was God is what what he was proving to Abraham and really to the whole world in this instance. God was proving to them that this is not how I operate. I don't ask you as my people to sacrifice your children to me. I don't ask you to do that, which to us as 21st century people is like, Duh. Like, we get that. That's not surprising to us. You know who it was surprising for? It was surprising for Abraham. Because if you look at all the other religions, all the other reasons around them, you know what they were doing? When God seemed angry at them, they sacrificed a whole bunch of things, even their kids, to try and make the gods happy with them. And God, the one true God, is revealing to Abraham, revealing to the whole world, I don't roll like that. I don't ask of you to sacrifice your, your, yourself to make me happy, to sacrifice your children, to make me love you more. I don't operate that way. 
But here's what's so amazing is, is Paul is using these words on purpose. He says, listen, you remember how God told Abraham, no, do not give up your son. But what does God do? Willingly. And what does the Son of God do willingly? Give himself up. He says, I don't need you to do that because I will do that for you. Jesus lays down his life for you, and when you let the magnitude of that sink in, you know what you become convinced of? God, you are for me. Even when I don't get what I want, even when I'm the five-year-old in Target, looking up to you, my parent God, and I'm asking for that thing, and you're saying no, and I'm stomping my feet, and like, my dad hates me. We do it all the time, right? You may not stomp around, but you, you get angry like that, right? When God doesn't act the way you want him to. But here's what you can be convinced of. God is for you even in him saying no to you. God is for you even when you look at your life and you're like, man, it's hard, it's difficult, but, but when we look to the cross and we keep that at the focus of our hearts, we're convinced, God, you are for me even in this. But Paul has one more. Not only is God for us, he goes on and he says that you will never be separated from God. That God's love is always with you, that his presence surrounds you, that God himself is with you no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what happens to you now or in the future, God is with you. You will never be separated. Listen to what Paul says in verse 35 to 36. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So, so what Paul is doing is he's asking kind of the question of, okay, so God is for us. Now let's look at our lives, and there's all these things going on. There's the sword, there's famine, there's destruction. There's all these earthly struggles that we face, big and small, and and what we can do, and what we often do, is we think to ourselves as we go through them, or as we see them out in the world, we wonder, God, you, are, are you far away from me right now? Are you distant from me? Uh, have you taken your presence away from me? Have you taken your love away from me? Have you taken your grace away from me? Because we look at our lives, and we're like, man, it's going to you know where in a handbasket. <laughs> I'm spiraling out. I'm facing all these difficulties. And then Paul goes one step further, and he says, we are treated as sheep to be slaughtered for your sake. And when Paul says for your sake, he's quoting Psalm 44, which if you read the original Psalm, Psalm 44, it's a psalm of the people of God talking to God. You know what's so amazing about that? Is they're telling God, God, we're doing what you're asking us to do. We're seeking to be faithful, and because of it, we're suffering. So in other words, Paul is not only saying when, like, just bad things happen, when difficulties come into your life, but also when you seek to be faithful and you seem to be punished for it. When you seek to do the right thing that you know God calls you to do, to have the conversation, to, to change the habit, 
to not engage in the behavior, to, to do the thing that will make you stand out, that may lead to other things, sometimes difficulties come because you're doing the faithful thing. Have you ever been there? Where you know the right thing to do. You know the faith-filled thing to do in whatever circumstance it is, whether it's big or small, but you also know, man, if I do this thing, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be difficulties. And sometimes you do it, and you face difficulties, and you wonder, God, where are you? I'm doing the thing you want me to do. Why does it seem like my life is getting worse? Why does it seem like my life is becoming more difficult? As Paul says in its vivid imagery, for your sake, God, for your sake, we are treated like sheep to be slaughtered. And when you're in that place, it can be easy to think, God, you are far away. You are not near. But what's Paul's response in thinking about all the things, the trial, struggle, the sufferings, what of those does Paul say can separate us from God's love? None of it. One of those beautiful passages, he continues in verses 38 to 39, no, N-O, in all these things, the suffering, the trials, the hardships, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate you. Paul even goes as far as to say as this, you are a victor over it. You are a conqueror over it. That you have the victory. And that wording he uses, you are more than conquerors, that was kind of military terminology. Meaning this, that, that, a, that an army won a battle, but they won it in such a way that it was like a total embarrassment for the other side. That anybody would look at it and be like, wow, that was not even a fight. That was not even a contest. You know, moving here to Michigan, and especially to when we moved to Ann Arbor area, um, you know, and being a hockey player, I heard about Yoast Arena. You guys familiar with that, right? And I was like, what the heck is Yoast? Like, it's a weird name. Well, it's a person, right? All the Michigan fans, that's a person, right? He was the coach of Michigan football team beginning in 1901. Anybody know about the 1901 Michigan football season? Sorry, state fans, you're going to have to bear with me. Anybody know about the 1901 Michigan football season? They went undefeated, and they beat their opponents by a total score of 550 to zero. Eleven games, and they gave up zero points. Even in the first ever Rose Bowl that year, they played Stanford, and eight minutes left in the game, the captain of Stanford went to the ref and was like, Let's just call it and go home. I'm not making that up. <laughs> that, that is not just a victory. That is like a total defeat. It is an embarrassment. It's not even a fight. And I say all of that not to puff you Michigan fans up. You don't need it. But rather to say this. Paul says, when you face those difficulties, when you face those struggles, here's what you can know. 
You have the victory over them. Right now. You're conquered over them. Yeah, everyone else thinks you're losing. But you're not. You have the ultimate total victory over them. And you can be convinced that even in them, God's love is with you because you have that victory. Now again, you may say, how do I know that? How can I be sure? Because everything else looks like it's going to crap. Uh, I think about these words from William Temple, who back in the early 1900s was a bishop in the Church of England. He actually became Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the head of the Church of England. Um, It's a longer quote, but but it's a beautiful reflection upon this truth that, that we can be confident of our victory. Here's what he says. That same crucifixion of the Lord, which was and forever is the utmost effort of evil, is itself the means by which God conquers evil and unites us to himself in the redeeming love. Judas and Caiaphas and Pilate, Pilate, they had set themselves in their several ways to oppose and to crush the purpose of Christ, and yet despite themselves, they became its ministers. They sent Christ to the cross, and by the cross, he completed his atoning work. From the cross, he reigns over mankind. God in Christ has not merely defeated evil, but has made it the occasion of his own supremest glory. Never was conquest so complete Never was triumph so stupendous. The completeness of the victory is due to the completeness of the evil over which it was won. It is the very darkness which enshrouds the cross that makes it so glorious, the light proceeding from it. Had there been no despair, no sense of desolation and defeat, but merely the onward march of irresistible power to the achievement of its ends, evil might have been beaten, but not bound in captivity to love forever." But God in Christ endured defeat, and out of the very stuff of defeat, he wrought his victory and his achievement. Or to kind of reflect upon Paul's words and what Archbishop is saying there, is that you may feel like you are a sheep being led to slaughter sometimes. You may feel like there's everything against you, and you're losing, but what you need to remember is that there was a sheep who was led to slaughter before you, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who faced the uttermost darkness of this world, and what did he do? He defeated it. And he gives that victory to you. It says, through faith in me, you, you have this victory. And so, I want you to think about this question. If you believe these things, God is for you, and that you will never be separated. More than that, you are a conqueror over all the evils of this world. You have the victory. If you believe these things, if you let them sink into your hearts, what type of person would you become? If you really believe these things, what type of person would you become? I think at the very least, you would become a humble person. Because you know God is for you. And you're hard to love, aren't you? I'm hard to love. But what did God do? He loved you. He died for you. It humbles you to recognize, wow, 
I don't deserve this, and yet I've received all that God has for me. So now I don't need to be judgmental. I don't need to be proud. I don't need to be, be haughty. I don't need to kind of look at myself and how awesome I am because I know that, that I'm undeserving, and yet God has loved me so I can be humble and I can serve those who others deem unlovable too. Makes you humble. But it also makes you bold. And bold not for boldness' sake, but bold to be faithful. Bold to do the right thing, even, even if it means more suffering. Even if it means it's going to create more headaches in your life in the short term. You can be bold to do it. To do the thing you know you need to do. To do the faith-filled, God-honoring thing. You can be bold to do it. Because listen, friends, you're playing with house money, aren't you? God is for you. He's won the victory. What do you have to lose? Your life? Guess what God will do? He'll raise you up. Your stuff? God has riches beyond your comparison, waiting to give to you in all of eternity. You have nothing to lose, so you can be bold because God is for you. God is with you, and you will never be separated from him. Amen.